0: It's time for a conversation about a book that matters. This is The Book Nook. Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Chapter 5. It was on a dreary night of November that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils with an anxiety that almost amounted to agony. I collected the instruments of life around me that I might infuse a spark of being into the lifeless thing that lay at my feet. It was already one in the morning. The rain pattered dismally against the panes, and my candle was nearly burnt out, when, by the glimmer of the half-extinguished light, I saw the dull, yellow eye of the creature open. It breathed hard, and a convulsive motion agitated its limbs. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe? or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form. His limbs were in proportion, and I had selected his features as beautiful, beautiful, great God. His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of pearly whiteness, but these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes that seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. The different accidents of life are not so changeable as the feelings of human nature. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an an inanimate body. For this, I had deprived myself of rest and health. I had desired it with an ardor that far exceeded moderation. But now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished. And breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. Well, guys, we're back together again to discuss a a real joyful piece here coming out of New Year's and <laughs> Christmas. This is um I know this is where everyone's mind wanted to go, but we are in the middle of sort of a, a meta series right now. We're calling Man versus Machine. Uh and by meta I mean overarching. Okay, so we've got both the Book Nook and this Man vs. Machine series revolving around and sort of um, uh, synthesizing with one another this idea of the technology that we make, the things that we build. And certainly Frankenstein is, is a, I would say, a cautionary tale of the kinds of things that man builds when he presumes too much of his own capacities. Um, but before we get too deep into this, how about... A quick synopsis. I, I think most people probably have the cartoon version of Frankenstein in their mind. You know, the guy with the flat head. And Banish pulse. it. Yeah, exactly. Banish it from your thoughts. <clears throat> so so, give us a synopsis. Someone, uh, you know, offer pony up here, a synopsis of Frankenstein. And, and maybe try to highlight some of the differences between what people typically think of with Frankenstein and what the book actually has to say about the story anyways, the plot.
1: Yeah, so the story of Frankenstein is a young man who grows up into academia and becomes obsessed with uh, both the mythological promises of uh, old technology, you know, Philosopher's Stone, the you know, the quest for immortality, and then marries that to sort of these modern scientific theories he meets in university, and he uh, turns away from his idyllic life with his family at home and bends himself over this creation of a, a creature. He wants to create life. And uh he's kind of got some reasons for doing that um from his past and we may discuss later. But when he creates this creature, this hideous, horrible creature, which is not green, has no uh bolts coming out of its neck, at least that we know of, but it's a huge, gigantic, hideous humanoid creature that comes to life and sort of dumbly stumbles around um, and so he flees in horror at what he created. That's the passage you just read. And then the rest of the story is him grappling with the consequences of making that creature um, who disappears for a time. Um, and Victor Frankenstein, uh, who's the name of the story, by the way, everybody calls Frankenstein the, the, the creature. The monster
0: is not Frankenstein. Yeah. Well, at least not the monster we have in mind.
1: Yeah. And and really the rest of the story is deciding what do we call this thing because it gets different names throughout mm-hmm. the story depending on what's going on. Yeah, I, I vote for Bernard, but that's Bernard. Bernard. <laughs> I, I, yeah, Bernard. Bernard. Hello, look, it's Bernard, the creature. Bernard, <laughs> Bernard the monster. <laughs> and, um, so the rest of the time he's sort of in this grudge match between the creature who wants more out of his creator and he's sort of the, uh, the creator who's really struggling because his creature is slowly, uh, taking away his family members as, uh, really revenge for creating him and then revenge for not giving him more of what he wanted out of life
0: i think that's really good and and the uh, the passage i read i chose to begin with that passage because i think it highlights the contrast or the distinction between what people imagine frankenstein is about and how victor frankenstein the the you know the chemist the scientist um, would have reacted when he saw his creature. You know, typically yeah. we have this picture in our minds of the doctor in the lab coat. It's alive! It's alive! Yeah. And the lightning is striking yeah. outside, and it's this dramatic, you know, moment of epic victory for the scientist. Yeah. But in the real story, it's immediately a catastrophe. The author highlights it as, how can I how could I describe the catastrophe that was sitting before me? So um, there wasn't any moment of... You know, adulation or, you know, uh, anything for him. He was alone. He was isolated. And for, for a he book hated that
1: it. spends way too many words on lots of things, um, the description of the beginning of the creature's life is remarkably short and surprising. Yep. It's almost as though Victor Frankstein worked this whole time. And then when it actually happened, when the moment of creation occurred, it's sort of like it surprised him. Yeah. Like, wait, it worked? He was
0: disgusted um, and went to bed, yeah. which we might have to talk about a little bit. <laughs> um, so. A story like this, I think, persists not because it's happy and redemptive. Uh, obviously, there's not much at all redemptive about this story, except maybe for the survival of one of Victor Frankenstein's family members. Yeah. The the, the, the lone boy Ernest, who yeah. we don't even know what becomes of him, but he survives at least. Um, but I think it survives because it's true in a sort of cautionary tale sense. Yeah, um, and maybe false in some other ways, and so we could talk about that. But I think it's true in a cautionary tale sense, and I think it also sort of it ticks that box for a lot of people that sort of horrific. Yeah, um, you know, we 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 like to be horrified by things that sort of you know scary story idea.
1: Yeah, it's like one of the classic monster stories, and it really interestingly enough, being such a classic <clears throat> monster story, as most good monster stories are, it's a human made monster. It's not some natural creature that's been lurking on earth for all this time, it's something we made, which, yeah. is, which is fascinating. If you read some of the literary
2: critics, they'll say um, that this is maybe one of the first works of science fiction. Mm. Um, and it's interesting, it was written, if you think about it, I mean, I think it helps to understand the context a little bit to understand the backstory. It was written right smack in the middle of the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. When there was a lot of displacement, a lot of creative destruction, people's lives and livelihoods being undermined and changed. There was a lot of people who were questioning, is this, is the Industrial Revolution a good thing or not? Also, Mary Shelley was the wife of Percy B. Shelley, who was a famous and well-read Romantic poet. And there's a whole set of sensibilities about, in the Romantic Poets, and she was his editor, actually, uh, in the romantic poets about um the importance of the natural world uh, unblemished by human intervention and how that should excite our passion and interest more than the works of our own hands and uh and so that is sort of some of the backstory to the 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 uh, intellectual environment from which she was writing and weirdly enough also I think, to a certain extent, an Hmm. anti-Christian point of view. Her husband was anti-monogamy, anti-marriage, which is ironic given that she was married to him, but also her father uh, was anti-monogamy. And we've read, you know, here at Lake Ridge, we went through a series on uh, Strange New World with Carl Truman, and he talked about the romantic poets and some of these people. And he actually talks about Mary Shelley's father as being kind of a leading proponent during the romantic period of anti-marriage, anti-monogamy, and also her husband. Um, and so she's kind of operating in this environment that's very—a uh, lot of technological advances, a lot of disruption to the culture because of those technological advances, and in and a, and a worldview that— um, Sort of denigrates what you might call biblical first principles in terms of human relationships. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I
0: think there's also some denigration of biblical first principles, though, in the Industrial Revolution, which we might need to yeah, ferret eventually. out at some point. And so mm-hmm. some of her contentions are justified. And some of the contentions I think of the romantics are justified. In fact, I, I spoke with a guy named Anthony Esselin over email who's a professor of literature and a great author. Um, and, and he says that Truman is overcritical of the romantics for that very reason. And I think he's right. Um, so, but without going too far down the Truman Esalen romantics, Mm -hmm. um, rabbit hole, we need to sort of focus our conversation if we can on Frankenstein and, and the, the the technology that we're seeing there, because Mm. at the end of the day, I think Frankenstein is, is a story about something that horrifies us. And if you do put it within the context of the Industrial Revelation, then that makes sense, because there's something horrifying going on around you. I think, I think, number one, we're horrified at the things that we create, and we're also horrified at what we ourselves um, can do. And, and there's, you, you get both of that in this story, because, you know, Victor Frankenstein, would you guys say, when well, we kind of talked a little bit about this at the beginning, but would you guys say Victor Frankenstein is a sympathetic protagonist do, do you do you sympathize with him do you identify with him Is he well
2: i wanted to slap him actually. yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that was my reaction so whatever the author's intent that was my reaction yeah
1: I, I would say you're supposed to be conflicted about victor frankenstein if i was to guess what mary shelley was trying to do i think you're supposed to go back and forth with him because there are times where He's an he's an absolute silly goose, and you just you just want to box him on the ears. But there are other times where I, myself included, I'm I'm inspired by him. I think there are things about him that capture the modern ethos, and so I think as a product of the modern world, there are things about him that I do sympathize with.
0: So, do you sympathize with him? I'm, I'm just trying to get go deeper. There, yeah. are you sympathizing with him because what you you know you said he sort of uh, embodies the modern ethos? Are you saying that's a good thing, or are you just acknowledging in yourself the modernity? Um,
1: uh, maybe yes and no. Maybe okay. I could be Maybe I be corralled or corrected through some of this. But his, his desire for discovery, his desire to make the world a better place. I mean, part of the reason that he created the monster was because of the death of his mother early in his life. And sort of this desire to overcome the the suffering in the world around him, um, which you see show up at the very end of the book when he gives this rousing speech to this uh, beleaguered group of sailors heading towards the Arctic. Um, the problem is all of his all of his attempts at discovery and bettering the life of his fellow man is filled with vainglory and foolhardiness and a lack of humility. Mm. So so to me, it's a double edged sword for Victor Frankenstein. Yeah.
3: So thinking about what I know of the story through the lens of a believer, it's it seems like um if I'm if I'm trying to sympathize with him, you know, in his in his moment of loss, he took matters into his own hands and instead of turning to God, he played God. Mm. And when you do that, um he may have thought that he <laughs> Thought this whole thing through, but you know, as you read in the beginning, what he almost recognized immediately was regret, or what he had immediately was regret. And so, the consequences that come into play when we play God and trying to take um, things in our own hands and and we'll uh, create our own scenarios um, that to me, that scares me just because we think we know what we're doing, but we don't. And then, when you look at the monster you know the fact that he was able to teach himself to read and study and all these things we'll probably get into this in our our second podcast today but the ability uh, that some a, a creation uh takes on the power it has to think and 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 do things that's a little bit scary you know in light of some of the stuff we see in our present day and age uh with ai and things of that nature yeah. so mm-hmm. it um yeah, yeah. it kind of makes you tremble a little bit you know we used to think uh, we go to the movies and see stuff about this and now it's actually really happening mm.
1: and, so. and that's maybe an, an important distinction for those who haven't read the book to, to maybe hammer in for them to get the conflict of this book the The creature is horrifyingly powerful he's not a green bumbling you know, Boo, you know sort of moving from place to place he's stronger than any man in the story More Out, agile, outrageously faster. fast in extremely intelligent he he the only way to defeat a creature like this would be at great effort and more than likely great cost of life to humans to defeat it once it's alive the cost to destroy it is significant in
0: fact he found once he decided to destroy it he couldn't
1: yeah he, yeah he
0: he could not overtake it yeah um and and there's something about pandora's box there yep. that has to be i think touched on at some point there are some things that we can make that open a proverbial Pandora's box that you can't put everything back. You can't undo the thing that uh, has been done since you made whatever it was you made. Um, So there's, there's a theme here. I think that we need to touch on and it's this idea of, it's actually explicit. It's, it's literary in in places and then also explicit in other places in the book. But it's this, it's this sort of uh, narrative arc of creation fall and where's the redemption. And Mm. so, um, for instance, you you see the fall of Victor Frankenstein, even in his chasing after this knowledge. And so what began as sort of an honest response to the death of his mom and the grief that, uh, you know, obviously accompanies that, evolved into something else or devolved into something else entirely. Um, And he was, you know, in his pursuit of natural philosophy and scientific knowledge and expertise in all these areas, Mm. he shut out everything in life that mattered. And there's a poignant passage in the book about he he couldn't even see the changing of the seasons. He was blinded to everything going on around him except for this one thing. And it's actually later referred to as his moment of biting the apple from the tree of the knowledge Mm. of good and evil. And so Victor Frankenstein himself bites into that knowledge. And so I guess what what does Victor Frankenstein Frankenstein's story and his pursuit of knowledge teach us about man's capacity to know
2: and do? Is it is it is it all good knowledge? Is all knowledge good knowledge? Well he says I I'll read a quote that I'd sort of highlighted here uh in this regard and he's talking about some of his own reflections. He spends a lot of time reflecting in this book, uh, more time than I sort of enjoyed. But anyway, um, he, he says this um, in chapter four. He says, if the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections and to destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful. That is to say, not befitting the human mind and i think he this point this touches on something important which is <clears throat> almost that um study can become a an idol uh the pursuit of knowledge can become an idol and i think this is almost what paul says um when he says knowledge puffs up but love builds up um it's not for nothing that there's an intermingling here of uh, uh, contrasting the pursuit of knowledge with proper affections and, and, and I, contrast.
0: I would totally mm-hmm. agree with you. And I would even add to that, <clears throat> that there are things, even if the thing we're studying itself isn't an idol, like our, our, our pursuit yeah. of that knowledge, the thing we make may not contribute to human flourishing. Right? yeah. And if, and if what we're making isn't contributing to, to human flourishing, then it's not of God. It should not be therefore. Lawful. And so, I guess part of the one of the questions the story begs is what are the proper bounds upon human knowledge, pursuit, and you know, technological uh, creation?
1: Yeah. So, one of the things that will disappoint uh, a modern reader of this book is we actually don't get the secret of how the monster came to life. You know, it's sort of like the key to the story is intentionally left out. And, um, Frankenstein is trying to keep that from the people he's relating his tale to because he doesn't want this example repeated. He actually says just a little bit earlier before Keith was reading, he's talking to the person who's hearing his story. He says, learn from me, if not by my precepts, at least by my example, how dangerous is the acquirement of knowledge and how much happier that man is who believes his native town to be the world than he who aspires to become greater than his nature will allow. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a key that Victor Frankenstein has to learn. He actually wanted knowledge that was too great for him, right? And it's this idea that even if what you create may be for good, there are certain things that humans will inevitably destroy. That's interesting Mm -hmm. because, I mean, there's
2: there's a theme in multiple uh, literatures, I think going all the way back to the events in the Garden of Eden about, this notion that there are things too great for us to know, right? I mean, that's one of the first principles, really, in the Garden of Eden story is, you know, the, you you exist in the world, man, and you have freedom of action within the world, but there is a knowledge that's too great for you to bear.
0: Well, this is—and yeah. right, and for uh, her,
2: for Mary Shelley, that was the Apple moment. So you're right, right. it does go all the way back to this <clears throat> garden. Um, and the Garden. The other thing I, I want to mention here, it is that— Gets back to your original question, Ben, which is, you know, what are the boundaries or the context in which uh, the pursuit of knowledge should take place? Something is said here by Frankenstein, and I think it's chapter. It's also chapter four. He says that in my education, my father had taken the greatest precautions that my mind be impressed with no supernatural horrors. I do not even remember. I do not ever remember to have trembled at a tale of superstition or to have feared the apparition, apparition of a spirit. Darkness had no effect upon my fancy, and a churchyard was, to me, merely the receptacle of bodies deprived of life. What interests me about that comment was that what he's sort of saying is all of my work took place within a, a framing of entirely naturalistic assumptions. And— Yeah. Right?
1: Uh, yeah yep well, and he he marries two really dangerous sides of naturalism in his pursuit of knowledge because his teachers are astounded that the books he started reading were apparently these archaic yeah. uh, writers in in what they call at that time natural philosophy and it's concerned with like immortality and invincibility things that are so far beyond at least at their time the the uh, in some ways, the realm of scientific inquiry. And yet he he keeps those dreams of grandeur and marries them to the modern scientific study of just try it, just experiment, just use all these powers and sort of grasp at what's the next uh, piece of the puzzle in overcoming the world. And when you take the power that can be found in n- scientific experimentation and you take the delusions of grandeur that can be found in just anywhere humans are thinking long enough you get monsters
0: well so uh, along these lines um you know we've, we've pointed this out but victor's original obsession was with this occult ish sort of magical philosophy type um uh, version of science, so called, but he ultimately found his breakthroughs in natural philosophies, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so it was the pairing of these two things when he got those delusions of grandeur from the prior, and married those with the technical capabilities of the uh, latter. What we get is literally Satan on Earth. Hmm. Yeah. Um, that's what it produces. In fact, the the demon, as he's referred, the monster, the demon, as he's called throughout the book calls himself Satan.
1: Yeah, he, except he says that Satan is better off yeah, because he wasn't alone. He reads Paradise Lost when he's sort of learning about the world and says, "I I I think I'm Satan." Like <laughs> he's like, "I think that's who I am in this story."
0: Yeah. And so so here's here's another thing I think we need to we need to talk about within the context of this discussion of what are the proper bounds for the pursuit of knowledge and and what should limit those ambitions for mankind? I think we have to look to Clairvaux, Elizabeth, and Victor's father, hmm. okay? Those three were the embodiments of morality, tenderness, and wisdom, paternal wisdom in particular, Yeah. okay? Uh, Victor, Victor shuns all three of those individuals in his pursuit of achievement, scientific achievement, this breakthrough. And interestingly, his name is Victor. He mm. succeeds, yeah. but it's a tragic success. And so there's this—I I think there's a literary idea going on here <clears throat> that, that victory in whatever pursuit you're going for should be tempered by morality, tenderness, paternal wisdom. There are other things greater than, than that pursuit in and of itself that should create the proper bounds— um, for scientific pursuit what do you think does that make sense mm-hmm.
1: yeah I think that definitely that definitely meshes well with the story because throughout you'll have a, a season <clears throat> where Victor gets wrapped up in this conflict with creature and then he'll escape and go back to his old life and it's almost like dude just stay there dude just don't like you don't have to keep going back to this now he'd sort of put himself in a pickle and he should have confided interestingly enough, in all of those people. Um but especially Clerval. Halfway through the story, he goes on this journey with Clerval, Um and um the two of them sort of <laughs> jaunt around Europe. Um and the great uh love and faithfulness of uh of of Henry, his friend, is just shown in huge contrast to Victor, who's keeping these secrets and who's trying to figure out how to get himself out of this jam. Um, and a character who might otherwise be considered Kind of an adult in other stories You see him and you go Man he's the good guy here <laughs> And interestingly enough all the people Who are a good influence on Victor die So it's just yeah, just yeah. the way things go In this story Yeah. Um, if we framed the discussion In the context
2: in which you put it Ben In which you know it's right Affections, tenderness um, wisdom, Paternal wisdom um, How would that influence i'm thinking specifically about how christians invest in creative endeavors yes how would those things influence and and bound uh how we invest ourselves in creative endeavors because i do think we should be involved as christians in creative endeavors so i
0: i would say and and I've, i've come to these conclusions recently through the reading of a couple other books not you know not unrelated to frankenstein but not just frankenstein um but, but I would say that, for instance, God made man to be a steward of creation. Mm-hmm. And as a steward of creation, we have the capacity to dive in and figure it out, right? And to build societies and to build tools and techniques and technologies to, to embetter the world and, and to enrich creation, right? That's the job of the steward. But I think divorced from God, Satan can pervert that same capacity— for his own ends. And so what we have, I think, in Victor Frankenstein and what has to be avoided for the Christian is to launch out in unfettered pursuits of, of those um, uh, ends completely divorced from any knowledge of God, from any concept of his revealed purposes for mankind. So if what we're pursuing is tempered by revealed Will of God, then as Christians, I think we're on the right track in whatever creative pursuit we're, we're marching toward. If, if we believe that there's such a thing as a moral good and knowledge in and of itself, then that is, and that to do that would be progress. To pursue that is necessarily progress. We are not just kind of, not just metaphorically, but actually believing the devil's lie from Genesis chapter 3. Mm-hmm. That your progress entails eating from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you cannot progress in any way apart from that. Um, and so I think that that's what I would say. Christians and Christian scientists and Christian doctors and all these people should pursue um, their, their own abilities and capacities for stewardship in whatever yeah. realm they're in. But it has to be tempered by God's revealed will for creation and for mankind.
1: Yeah.
3: yeah and I was thinking that maybe whatever contributions we would look to make at the Lord's prompting with creativity and things of that uh nature, what what safeguards might we add to that so that it can't be twisted by someone else. Um again, I don't know how successful we can be in that because sometimes those things are out of your control, but um but to think through it, because of thinking about this story, it doesn't seem like Victor did. And it got out of <clears throat> excuse me, it got out of his, his control really quick. And um, so, you know, again, I, I feel like I'm jumping ahead to our next podcast. But sometimes I, I think there are good things that we do contribute. That um, if we wish there were safeguards that would prevent bad characters from coming in and, and getting their hands on it and using it for ungodly means. So. so
0: yeah. So let's let's turn here and look at the technology itself. Let's look at the monster yep. in the story, the yep. demon. As I, said, I think that's a good pivot point, Van. So. Um, it, does the monster start off murdering everybody in town? Like does he wake up and immediately strangle the nurse or yeah. something, you know? What what do you see? Tell us a little bit about what you find in the monster in its beginnings.
1: No, so the monster doesn't the monster is in many ways uh ch- childish. He he's trying to understand the world around him. He doesn't know how to speak. He doesn't he has to even unravel his senses from one another, you know, in the same way a baby might have to go, okay, (laughs) what are the shapes and sounds and sights in front of me? And uh, over time has to observe humans and discover what being human is all about. Um, I think this is actually one of the ways in which Mary Shelley is wrong about humans But also in the way that she proves herself wrong in her own story. But maybe we can get to that in a second. Because the monster in many ways is a blank slate when it's born, quote-unquote born. And it has to learn from other humans what it means to be human. And it learns what it means to be human really from watching this cottage of simple uh, peasant farmers uh, sort of live life. And uh, he learns from their story and in the end tries to approach them to become one of them and in doing so is is rebuffed is is rebuked he's hideous he's horrible and they and they run away from him and this sort of sets him off kind of down his more murderous <clears throat> and hating of human path that he takes well that's his story um
2: i can i confess that um as i read you know the monster recounting his story i had a certain amount of skepticism um uh, mostly based in i guess in my own experience of human nature right we 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 all would like to maintain the fiction, and it's and Rousseau actually I think introduced this in Western culture more than anybody else that I would be okay except for I was spoiled by yes. the world mm-hmm. right um and of course, the monster in this story is not human, but there's an entire discussion uh a biblically literate discussion in fact about how he corresponds in some ways to Adam and, and Frankenstein corresponds in some ways to the creator. And that continues to come up throughout the story. But I I think that it was convenient for the monster to rationalize his murderous inclinations by saying, well, it's only because I was rejected. And I think you, I think Frankenstein before it's over figures out that the remedy proposed by the monster, which is to give him, a female companion like him uh would only lead to more devastation because at the end of the day it's not everybody else's fault when we do things that are wrong yeah and and so uh, along those lines you know the the crisis that the monster
0: faces is the same crisis is the original crisis that faced man yep. from the beginning which is as god saw himself it is not good for man to be alone And yet God had the capacity to create for man a a perfect helpmeet. And God creates within—so this is interesting. Let's compare and contrast Victor's creation versus God's creation. God created out of love within the perfect community of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit. His creation of mankind was the overflow of the love that God had. Contrast that with Victor's, who was isolated, cut off from everyone in his life, and created out of blind ambition, obsession, uh, sickness. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, and God,
3: God, created man, or Adam, man, in His image. I don't know if we'd say Victor created the monster in His image, or maybe we would say it, it was a yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean,
0: like, there's something to be discussed there. But, yeah. but I think that I, I I think that the monster has a beef with his creator because his creator played god but couldn't do the job properly. Yep.
2: Well, he says in fact and I'm reading here from chapter 15. There's a there's a conversation between the monster and um and Victor and if you ha- if you're listening to this podcast and you haven't read this this may be jarring because the 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 popular view of the monster is someone with oversized boots kind of lumbering. Grunts, through and grunts town, through the- grunts, oh. and grunts But in the book, he's actually very intelligent, articulate and well-read eventually. Um, and the monster says this, like Adam, I was apparently united by no link to any other human being in existence, but his state was far different from mine in every other respect. He had come forth from the hands of a God who had a perfect, who from the hands of God, a perfect creature, happy and prosperous guarded by the especial care of his creator he was allowed to converse with and acquire knowledge from beings of a superior nature, but I was wretched, helpless, and alone. Many times I considered Satan as a fitter emblem of my condition, for often like him, when I viewed the bliss of my protectors, the bitter gall of envy rose within me. And then he says this, God in pity made man beautiful and alluring after his own image, but my form... Is a filthy type of yours, more horrid even from the very resemblance. Yeah. So I do think that um, there is this um, perverse and perverted uh, parallelism with God's original creation. And honestly, when I read that passage, I was reminded because everything goes back to Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings, uh, I was reminded of what he said about um, Sauron uh, and all like him, which is yeah. uh, they were unable to actually create. They could only uh, distort and mimic in, in horrible ways uh, what they saw in creator. It, it, having been done by the creator
0: she she even carries this this
2: creation narrative
0: forward in the story beyond what you just read because the the first murder in the story is the death of a beloved son and brother mm-hmm. so yeah. you have Abel's slaughter, yeah. by Cain, the marked mm-hmm. beast, right, so like right. um
3: yeah. Uh, so, Keith, what you said about mimic—I mean, that's interesting because that's what we see with the antichrist, you know, mm-hmm. coming and performing signs and wonders, yeah. and um, you know, it was also interesting that the monster didn't go around just killing anybody and everybody, but he targeted those that mattered to Victor the most, and um, you know, I, I'm thinking about Satan's agenda here on Earth to go after what God cares about most, and and um, anyway. That kind of stuck out to me about uh, the mind of, of the monster here in the story and, and what he was honed in on in light of his. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it, and that well, highlights one of the other great de- deficiencies of Victor's creation. He created purposelessly. Mm-hmm. Is that the right? Did I say that too many syllables? Um, he <laughs> created a monster without a purpose for the creature. So God creates man and creates a world that is suited for him and creates a purpose that he is supposed to have within that world. It all has intention. Victor just sort of creates almost by accident, just by blind ambition. And then when he has a, a creature, he doesn't know what to do with it. And so the creature intuits this and gives himself purpose. Time and time again, he says, "Well, maybe my purpose is to be like humans, and then maybe my purpose is to destroy my creator's life." Right? He chooses a purpose. Interestingly enough, he's always trying to—he's uh, always trying to become human. And he gets all of his guesses right, at least in the beginning, if we can believe his story. Right. Well, but he,
2: but he, this progression that you're describing comes to the point where near the end of the book, in a confrontation with Victor Frankenstein, the monster actually says to him, you are my creator, but I am your master. Yes. Obey. And I was just struck by that, by how much that sounds like modern man... Hmm. And his, and his sort of posture toward God. I
0: was also, I was kind of struck by how much that sounds like the internet.
1: <laughs>
0: um, and so, I, I mean, very very truly, I think you can look right. at it both ways. You can look at how we talk to God, but you can also sort of consider the way that our own creations come to dominate and rule over us. Right, yes. Um, and, and, I, and I think that, I think we need to sort of move in that direction at this point. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the monster and the effect that the monster has on his creator and the world around him. Okay? So, um what are some pivotal moments you think in the relationship between the the monster and the creator himself?
1: So, obviously one of the lar- one of the most pivotal conversations they have is whenever the monster is explaining to victor this is the only this is really the first time he encounters his monster face to face uh since he created him and it's after he's uh murdered william and uh he's uh, sort of twisted justice so that uh one of the 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 family friends justine is also killed executed for that crime mm-hmm. he he tricks everyone and so they're having this discussion and the monster basically demands I want to disappear. I don't want to bother you anymore. I want you to give me a mate. I want you to give me a corresponding monster woman um, to be with me. Mrs. Monster. Mrs. (laughs) Mrs. Bernard. Mrs. Bernard Monster. Mrs. Bernard Monster. And there's a lot of back and forth in that conversation, but Victor eventually says yes. One of the great... uh, twists I think of the story is he actually agrees at the beginning to, to And, do and that. he
0: tries and then abandons it because he realizes what going further into the abyss of that delusion of playing God is not the answer no. to to the problem he's unleashed upon the world. Yeah. Um so there's there's there is in that moment a form of at least partial repentance yeah. on the part of Victor who says I'm I can't keep going down this road. This road is not the solution.
1: He finally decides to act more like a man and right. less, yeah. less like a Wimp. Yeah. yeah, well, and it, it, it makes something very clear about our technologies. Our technologies, even if we create them, they will come back and always make demands of us.
2: Well, that's exactly right. And I think that's the an interesting, compelling thing about the story is once he create even so he he gives himself over to the pursuit of doing this. And then, but once he brings the monster to life, once he reaches the apex of his pursuit, then suddenly, his entire life, uh, he can't pursue anything but cope with the after effects of that creation. The re- I mean, the entire story from the moment the monster comes to life is all about him trying to come to grips with what that means in his life and the life of everybody he cares about. Yeah. You know how he made a mate?
3: It may have worked out because if you've ever seen The Monsters, I mean, The Monster has a wife. They have yeah. a son, Eddie. I mean, it's
1: <laughs> yeah. it's a great show. Man. I mean, uh, Lots of fun. It oh. would have turned this horrific monster story into a sitcom. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. a real lark. Yeah. yeah. No, but so, he, he so he actually repents and some of the logic he uses for this is really compelling. He says, I'm doing this. I'm creating this monster mate, this Mrs. Monster, because I want this creation to get off my back. I want him to leave me alone. But what I would do is... I would double the, the, the villains in the story, and I would create the possibility of there being an entire species of these creatures, and what would that do to his fellow man? And so once he finally starts asking the question, what is this going to do to the rest of my fellow humans, he finally starts making good choices. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, would, I, I totally agree. I, I, so there was a line in this that, um, that grabbed my attention because I, I've, I've seen this in my life in in the eyes of students you know i've been a student minister you know i was a student minister for 10 years and um and i've also seen this in you know siblings in in my own family but um, th- there's this line where elizabeth this beautiful joyful uh tender loving human being i mean she's she's nigh angelic um this this woman she's she's hit with the grief of the death of the little boy and the, then the death of Justine, her friend. And you get this line, it says the first of those sorrows, which are sent to wean us from the earth had visited her and it's dimming influence quenched her dearest smiles. Hmm. And I just couldn't help but picture something I saw time and time again in my years as youth pastor, whenever Kids had sort of gone beyond the age of innocence, and and I happened to be a youth pastor during the transition from pre-iPhone to iPhone era, and kids started just showing up to church with iPhones. I remember the first kid who showed up at church with an iPhone, Van, you may remember who that was, and this girl showed up to the church with an iPhone, and everyone was like, oh my goodness, and we were pushing the screen, you know, and like, <laughs> it's amazing, it's from the future. I mean, that's the way it felt when it showed up, the smartphone with the touchscreens and all that. And then everyone started getting them. Everyone started having that technology. And and I think, I think we were so stupid, as not just a society, but as Christians. We should have had the capacity to think better about what that kind of technology might do. But in the years after 2007, and 2007 to 2009, when all that really dropped hard, social media I think came out, 2009 or something like that, or 10, anyhow. The light just vanished from so many students' eyes. And, and their smiles were dimmed. There was like, I don't know what it was doing, but it was robbing them of joy, seeing so much. It's, it's as though, to go back to Tolkien, it's as though they, they'd all been gifted their own personal palantir. Yeah. And, and it was literally sucking the life out of them. Mm. Um, and yet here we are.
1: And, and I think it's important that in the story most of the victims are young that it starts with children children in the story die first and it sort of moves up the chain from there and it's the most vulnerable that die The, the not even the father dies by the direct action of the monster more of a broken heart yeah he dies with a broken heart and and victor also isn't killed by the monster it's the young it's the vulnerable it's the it's the naive it's those who were not prepared for what was coming they're the ones who bear the brunt of the technological advancement
0: so what i also found interesting about this story kyle and this is to your point he creates this technology okay we'll call it a technology for the sake of the podcast it's a monster he creates this technology And then it immediately begins wreaking havoc in the lives of his family members. One of the weird things that we see, even in Silicon Valley, is a lot of these guys who create this epic technology, whether it's a social media platform or a smartphone technology, um, they don't allow their kids Hmm. to have those devices or to be on those platforms. Because they know, they see, better than anyone else, the danger that the thing they created poses and they immediately want to protect their loved ones from that thing. Now, I think Victor Frankenstein is naive in thinking that he can protect his family from this monster, and he doesn't really even try that hard until everyone dies, right? Um, but but, but it's too little too late. Honestly, it's a tragic tale of too little too late. Yeah.
3: So these creators today are doing good by their family, but um, they're acting like Victor toward
2: the public. You know, this is an interesting uh, dynamic. Um, I I mean, I've written on this in other places. Um, there's a really weird phenomenon. So I've been, I'm I'm sort of, um, if anybody's like Victor Frankenstein in this room here today, it might be me in the sense <laughs> that I've been very involved in technology development and I have a lot of inventions and, and whatnot. And I started first doing this kind of thing in the late 1980s and have been very involved in Silicon Valley and doing startups and did that for 20 years. Um, and the interesting thing about that, because so I've been here since the since the computer revolution in the early eighties, right? I've been doing this and sort of had a seat at the table. And the interesting thing about all of us who were doing this in the late eighties, early nineties was no one understood what we were doing and they all thought we were nerds. Um and and now without getting into whether or not we were nerds, we were probably nerds. <laughs> but um but what was interesting about that is that um The motivations that we all had were to do uh, something useful for our users, for our customers. Now, you fast forward a few years, and there's a lot of reasons for this. I've written about this. But you you fast forward a few years, and the fundamental relationship between technologists and users changed. And it it came to the point where technologists came to view their users not as their customers, but as their products. And, and so you're not the diner, you're the dinner of your technology providers today. They sell you, and it's all kind of rooted in an advertising business model. But here's my, here's my larger point. My larger point is that so much of the technical creativity that's possible in, among human beings has been funneled into exploiting your neighbors mm-hmm. instead of doing hard things that benefit your neighbors. Um, I mean, there are a few companies uh, that are doing interesting things that are hard and challenging and are beneficial potentially. and I think of you know companies like SpaceX and some others that are changing the world in ways people don't even understand yet, and in in some ways for the better. But but I think that a lot of the investment over the last fifteen to eighteen years has been in in basically providing. Uh, bait to uh, consumers so that they can be exploited by the technology providers. And so, here's an example: Distractedness is central to current technology. Um, distractedness, by the way, is lethal to creativity. But at any rate, it's so they implement distractedness in the technology, and they discourage in their users the very thing that has contributed to the success of the person who's developing the technology. Because to develop the technology, you need a sustained, deep focus. Mm-hmm. But they're using their own sustained, deep focus to develop technologies that are distracting and diverting mm-hmm. and preclude the mm-hmm. development in their very users of the thing that has
1: enabled them to create. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's sort of appalling. That's That's really horrifying just going to say that i'm that stuff scares me when i think about it you know as scary as frankenstein is i think those kind of stories that people in the technology world tell me those scare me more and it gets at one of the things that i think is so brilliant about this book and and keith you brought it up earlier it's who are we really trusting in this story because none of these characters are at least none of the narrators are really trustworthy individuals we 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 hear the story of victor frankenstein from victor frankenstein we hear the story of the monster from the monster. You know, every once in a while they'll say, well, here's a letter proving what I said is true. But it only proves so much. And so it's to your point, Keith, we have to take a lot of this on the good word of these individuals when we know based on the story they're up to no good. There are things that they're doing that are not for us. And so I think this this whole story proves the point that at the end of the day, we're just sort of, we're taking people's word that what they're creating is technology to your point, Ben, and not a monster. And I think that's a really hard thing to believe when you see the way this story is playing out.
0: Yeah, I think I think one of the lies that we all walk around with is that the technologies we make are amoral, or yes. at least morally neutral, um, until they're put to use by man. And one of the things that Neil Postman has to convince us of when you read him is... And, and other media critics like him, but it's it's the idea that technology does have a bent in a particular direction because it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It exists within a world of human nature to the point being we had this opportunity to create things that were good for our neighbors and we ended up exploiting our neighbors, right? Um, and so you you can't talk about technologies being amoral or morally neutral because human beings are not amoral or morally yeah. neutral.
1: And, and this is why I think uh, Mary Shelley sort of tramples her own argument because she wants to see she seems to make this argument throughout the story that everybody is just a blank slate their circumstances sort of define them and she even throws in sort of these really preachy moments about like oh man if only kid people would just let children discover their own passions and leave them alone they'd be these wonderful angelic creatures and that's sort of the picture she paints of the monster but at the end of the day the monster becomes exactly what we knew it would be it wants to pretend to be human and so it says I want to be human, so I need a mate. He didn't create a blank slate. He created something that was mimicking humanity. And when it had its chance, it asked for a mimic of what humans want. Okay. So,
0: there's another character in the story we haven't discussed yet. This story is not told um, in the way that a lot of stories are told. Okay, there's a character we meet at the very beginning who's writing letters to his sister. And he stumbles upon he this guy is an explorer, okay, and he is filled with all of the exuberance and passion for scientific exploration that Frankenstein was. This is the first guy we meet. What do you mean you want to remember his name? I can't Walton remember. Walton. Walton, that's his right.
1: Last name, I believe.
0: Walton. And so Walton is off on this expedition through the ice caps to try to explore what is it, the North Pole?
1: Yeah. Yeah. He okay. wants to get to magnetic north pole. Yeah.
0: Right. Okay. So he's off doing this, and he stumbles upon this man, basically dying in a small little chunk of ice in yeah, the middle he's on of an the ice flow. Right. Right. Yeah. In the middle of the the
2: Arctic Ocean. Arctic
0: Ocean. Okay. And he pulls him on, and that man is Victor Frankenstein. And so the story is told on Walton's ship. Frankenstein tells this whole story to Walton the whole time. This story is being told in the back of your mind. You're wondering what impact will this story have on Walton who was also ambitious and scientifically minded and you're wondering will Walton get it? W- w- will Walton turn back and um, and so what was your what was your take on the end walk us through the end of the story if if you remember what happens at the very end, in the climax of the story.
2: In terms of, well... The story, the plot, Ultimately, like, like what happens. Ultimately, uh, Victor Frankenstein expires, and shortly before he does, the monster shows up on the ship, and...
0: Or after he does, shortly, shortly after. Yeah,
2: I can't remember if he was... Yeah. He was dead. Dying or, die- or dead, but... Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, has a conversation with Walton, and... Um, and basically resolves and tells Walton, I, I'm going to kill myself. Uh, and, you know, I'm going to go off and burn my body to ashes so that no one can even find any evidence that I ever existed. Um, but there's this tension on board ship between Walton and his crew over whether at all costs they're going to move forward with their exploration or whether they're going to return to home and Hearth. And uh, eventually, I think they prevail upon him to turn back from, you
1: know, what increasingly looked like a suicidal pursuit to home and hearth. And and this is in direct... In, in some ways, it's in direct opposition to what Frankenstein is arguing, because Frankenstein argues at the end in this epic speech, which I love the speech, even though I think he's he's absolutely foolish for it's, making it's, it. It's moving. It's a yeah. moving speech. It's moving, and then but we want to punch idiot. him. he's an idiot. He yeah. hasn't learned his lesson. He hasn't learned his own lesson. And even Walton doesn't learn his lesson. Walton just says, well, at the end of the day, my cowardly... Uh, crew is not gonna let me go forward so we're gonna go home but the whole point of the story is at the end Victor Frankenstein's going listen I created this monster I shouldn't have done it I should have seen the signs it was gonna destroy all the people I loved and Walton goes huh that doesn't sound at all familiar <laughs> to my situation but at the end of the day he consents to let his crew live
0: and they go home so so here's, uh, here's the final words of Victor Frankenstein farewell Walton Seek happiness and tranquility, and avoid ambition, even if it be only the apparent innocent one of distinguishing yourself in science and discoveries. Yet why do I say this? I have myself been blasted in these hopes, yet another may succeed. His voice became fainter as he spoke, and at length, exhausted by his effort, he sunk into silence. About half an hour afterwards, he attempted again to speak, but was unable. He pressed my hand feebly, and his eyes closed forever. While the irradiation of a gentle smile passed away from his lips. So in the end, Victor Frankenstein tries to give good advice, and yet there's this there's this spark of yet maybe someone else will succeed where I failed. Yep. Maybe I just didn't do it right. Maybe, maybe, maybe someone else will take the ball and carry it further and succeed where I've he misses the point. And I think that's the illusion that uh this modern philosophy called scientism right right uh i think offers humanity um
1: you know it's interesting and this is i don't think this redeems the monster but it's interesting the only creature that realizes its own limits if if we're to believe that the monster does end up telling the truth and it seems he does the end of the story he he says i'm just gonna go off and and die in the north I've I've done what I want to do. He's the only one who recognizes his own limits in the entire story. All the humans, all the people who should have known better, never do. They're the ones who are constantly believing someone else will do better. I'll do better when the story is preaching the 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 truth that human nature never changes. We like to believe that it will. We like to believe we're getting better, but we're always the same.
2: Um, I I'm, I'll mention this, and maybe this will be more of a topic for conversation later, but um. I think there, you know, the experience we've all had with COVID over the last two or three years is arguably um, a symptom of the same mindset that motivated Mm -hmm. Victor Frankenstein. Uh, I mean, it it didn't result in a monster that took the form of a humanoid, but it did result. (laughs) Thank goodness. But I I think there's (laughs) so far as we know, there's a growing body of evidence that um, that it's a creation of man that COVID is a creation of man Mm. and uh, I'm not arguing for some uh, you know conspiracy to do what was done but I do think it it's very possible that the devastation that's been wrought is an artifact of human caprice and um, pride and arrogance Um, and and I think it's transcends even national boundaries Um, I think
0: yeah, it's 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 a you're absolutely right and I think we see that cautionary tale not just in Frankenstein but in other works of literature like, you know, oh, I don't know, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Where uh, gosh, yeah. Where <laughs> something random. Yeah. Um <laughs> pulling out of a hat. Where for instance men above all things desire power and where um there's this great temptation. You look at this ring of power and it's this great temptation for everybody to use it and to wield it and to think that they can wield it for good purposes. But in the end, they have to decide, no, it's better destroyed than wielded. It's better the world be without this power than for for good men to try to wield it to good ends. It's bent toward evil.
1: One of the things that Victor misses about himself is in this last part, when he's giving that final speech to the crew, he makes this line that the ice will not be as mutable as you, or you will be more immutable than the ice, meaning you are a greater power than the ice you have to go through to get to the North Pole. He's basically saying, you can overcome your circumstance because you're that strong. And the whole story of the book is this entirely weak Victor Frankenstein. This entirely mamby-pamby, can't get anything done besides create a monster that's going to kill his family, <clears throat> Frankenstein. And I think this is something that uh, hopefully Mary Shelley was trying to get across, is that maybe we our lives would be filled with a little less misery if we just believed that we're as fragile as we look, that we're as weak morally as we are physically. So I think I came
2: to the conclusion at the end of the book that there's there's a really great danger um, in man's creative ability untethered from a biblical worldview. Um, I think that's kind of the whole lesson of the Tower of Babel, which is In some ways, a metaphor for this story, which is, and God sort of intervened to basically put huge speed bumps in man's way in terms of technical achievement. Um, But I think that um, it's impossible to know and understand the good apart from a biblical worldview. And I think technique and technical skill decoupled from um, a proper understanding of what constitutes the good of human beings and and god's intent for our lives is a very dangerous thing and um i think creativity and technology are all wonderful things to work in but they need to be tethered to a uh, a hardcore understanding of what god's intent for human existence really is amen
0: and amen we'll see you in the next episode